thanks to all the kids. Uh, now the question will be if, uh, will Chelsea be willing to show off the dance moves as well and can compare uh, how close was Kinsey? <laughs> it's Mother's Day, so we won't make her do anything she doesn't want to do. But a happy Mother's Day to all you moms. And um, uh, we have uh, so much to be thankful for. Uh, in light of Mother's Day, I have a few you know you are a mom win jokes. Okay? You know you are a mom win. Going shopping by yourself feels like a vacation, and going on a family vacation feels like a ton of work. You know you are a mom when picking up another human to smell their butt doesn't seem weird, but necessary. Uh, you know when you're, you are a mom when take a shower is on your to-do list. You know when you're, you are a mom when you take a shower just so you can have two seconds to yourself. You know you're, you're a mom when you have more crayons in your purse than money. You know you're a mom when a, ba- a trip to the bathroom includes an audience. You know you're a mom when you, uh, you tell someone you are proud of them for burping. Oh, great burp. Good job. Uh, you know you're a mom when you're in shock if you sleep for more than four hours straight. So we all recognize that uh, being a mom is tough. It's uh, hard work, but it is surely the most important job on the face of the planet. It's hard work, and, uh, and our, my hope is today, on Mother's Day, that all the moms would uh, have a sense that it's, it's well worth it. It's, it's so valuable. It's so important. You know, my, every mom has a difficult job. I, I once knew a mom that I was just amazed how she was able to put it all together for her family. This was a single mom that had uh, two young boys. And uh, I'll have to admit that when I first met her, I, I kind of made the assumption that, uh, that there was something in the, in the past that was probably, you know, she, she was in a d- difficult spot, maybe because of her own uh, choices, that maybe she was divorced or she had these kids out of uh, wedlock and and I later found out that she was in this difficult situation because uh, her husband died in a tragic car accident and so for uh, so no decision of her own uh, she was put in a this this hard spot and she was doing the best that she could but she didn't have, uh, they, they, had, they were a young couple when they got married, when they had kids, and they had never thought to get life insurance, and now she and her two boys lived below the poverty line, just trying to make ends meet. And today's sermon piggybacks off of this mom's story, because my hope in today's message is that God would give us a heart for the poor. Today's uh, sermon is found in Nehemiah 5, but God's heart for the poor is found in uh, the pages of Scripture all over the place. God has a heart for the poor, and so should we. Father Father Gregory Boyle, uh, who has helped so many who are poor through his ministry in L.A. called Homeboy Industries, said, How could we change our mindset 
to stand in awe of what the poor have to carry rather than stand in judgment in how they carry it. And so my prayer today is that God would soften our hearts and that he would burden us to have a heart for the poor like he does. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, we now come before you, and first of all, we just want to come before you with a lot of gratitude. We thank you for the moms that are here, the moms that are watching online. We thank you for their hard work. God, we pray a special blessing upon them today, that they would just be filled with a sense of of joy in the calling that you have given them and being called to raise young kids. And, uh, and, and those moms, that their kids are older, God, that that calling never ends. They continue to, to pray and to seek to uh, care for their kids in the ways that are appropriate and whatever age they are at. And so, God, I pray for a blessing upon them. And, God, as we turn our attention uh, to your word, I pray that you would speak to us now. God, we come before you and we ask that you would be our teacher that you would send your spirit to uh, touch our hearts, that those things that you would have for us today, we come before you with open hands, praying that you would give us grace and strength to receive them from you. So I pray, I ask for your help in this message. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we begin our uh, discussion on poverty, uh, we should recognize that there are internal factors and external factors that usually cause poverty to happen. Internally, it, it can't, uh, poverty can come upon someone simply because they're not uh, making good choices or that they are, uh, uh, there's no nice way to say this, uh, that they haven't taken responsibility, that they are lazy. And the, Bi- the Bible has a challenge here. Uh, go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How can you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. Now, while I put that challenge out there, because maybe that is a challenge uh, for some, we recognize that there are many who live below the poverty line who are definitely not lazy or irresponsible. And perhaps they've made mistakes, as we all have, but we should acknowledge that there are also external factors that can cause poverty. Externally, there are systems in place that are designed to put people at a financial disadvantage and many of them work hard sometimes two three jobs just to uh, make ends meet and it doesn't seem that they can get ahead and we look at the external factors things like unfair wages unfair interest rates unfair rent uh, high medical expenses the anchor bible dictionary if now uh, just to kind of help us begin to turn our attention to the uh, bible I, I want to quote from a, the dictionary, the, a Bible dictionary, because it helps kind of put all of these things succinctly. In the scriptures, the poor were those who, quote, lacked economic resources and material goods. Now, that's obvious. Uh, this is, these are those that um, 
are suffering from having their needs being met. And to go on to quote some more, it says that those who suffered from political and legal powerlessness and oppression. So in other words, there were uh, the Bible talks about there being external systems that are designed to keep the poor in poverty. The poor are not a social group or political party, but are represented, and I'll quote one more time, the poor are represented as a diverse body of social actors, small farmers, day laborers, construction workers, beggars, debt slaves, city uh, dwell or village dwellers, end quote. And so all of that is to create a, a picture from the Bible that is very similar to what we see around us today. We might, uh, these are what we might call the working poor, who had jobs and worked very hard, but still couldn't seem to muster the resources to make ends meet. Now, I highlight all of that because now as we turn to Nehemiah 5, this is exactly what we're going to see in Nehemiah 5. The Israelites are working hard. They're rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. They're growing crops, but they still cannot uh, get enough food to feed their families. Some of them are so poor that they are forced to sell their children into slavery to pay their debts. Going to Nehemiah 5, verse 1, it says, Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. And I just pause there for a moment because we recognize that any uh, oppression that is being laid upon the people, a lot of it is uh, within the family of God, among, against the, the fellow Jews. Some of them were saying, we and our, and our sons and our daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. So that's, a, that's external force number one. There's a famine in the land. Nothing they can do about that. There's been a drought. They don't have food to eat. Verse 4, still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax. There's an oppressive tax that's been uh, uh, put on them. That's external force number two. And then to jump down to verse 7, it says, I pondered them in my mind and accused the nobles and the officials. In other words, those that were leaders among the Israelites, I told them, you are charging your own people interest, exclamation point. Like Nehemiah looks at uh, what's going on, and, he, and, he, and it's one thing to have a famine in the land. It's another thing to have a, a foreign ruler, the, the Persian king, uh, uh, applying all of these taxes among the Israelites. But then what really gets him upset is he looks uh, um, among the leaders of the, their, of the Jewish people, and he says, Part of the reason our people are struggling uh, as they are is because you're, you're uh, applying an exorbitant amount of interest upon their debts. They're, they're required to take out debts to pay the king's tax or to put food on the table. And, uh, and the Jewish people, the leaders among themselves, are, uh, are going beyond what would be helpful for their own people. They're applying an unnecessary, a burdensome tax. And Nehemiah says, how could this be? 
especially when God has spoken so clearly to you from his law. You are the, you are the people of God. How can you be acting in this way? And he refers back to the Old Testament law. For example, in Exodus twenty-two twenty-five, 25, it says, If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. This is what God's word says. Now, we recognize here just even from this passage that there, there's a distinction made between business deals and charity. And so when we talk about uh, charity, we're talking about giving without expecting anything in return. Uh, when we talk about business, uh, you expect to make a profit. And I just want to uh, emphasize that because I, I think God wants you to make a profit. He wants you to make a, a, uh, a living. But if you are in a position to charge interest, whatever your work is, my challenge to you as a follower of, of Christ would be charge an interest rate that is fair. If you are in a position to rent a, a home or an apartment or a room, if you're in that, if you have that in in your life, my challenge is rent at a reasonable rate. If you are in a position in your work where you set wages, pay fairly. This is part of your Christian testimony. And then a, another example, Deuteronomy, uh, another example from the law, Deuteronomy twenty three nineteen and twenty says, "Do not charge a fellow Israelite interest, whether on." or food or anything else that you may earn interest. They charge a foreigner interest, but not a fellow Israelite. And so God is saying here in the law, care for your fellow Israelites. If it's a foreigner, if it's someone outside of your family, your, your uh, family of faith, your ethnic family, so to speak, uh, charge interest. But uh, among your own family, don't charge any interest. That's what God says in the law. And I think the same thing in principle could be said to us as Christians. We are to care for one another as family. And so I love it when I hear of a family in the church that took food to someone who is in need. And I love it when someone gives to someone who is struggling. Sometimes I know many of you has, have given even uh, what was meant to be anonymous gifts to help someone who is going through a difficult time. I think that's a beautiful Christian testimony. In fact, I really think it is at the, um, it is at the heart of what it means to be the church. We love one another as brothers and sisters. We treat one another as family. And, and hopefully if we love Christians well, it is a testimony to those who are on the outside looking in to say, wow, what a difference that God can make in a person's life. But this is not what we see happening here in Nehemiah 5. And so uh, Nehemiah sees what's happening and his blood starts to boil. He's angry about what he hears. Verse 6 says, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. He couldn't believe what he was seeing. How can you treat one another this way? 
How can you uh, treat another person of, that is following this, uh, your God in, in such an, a dishonorable way with so, such little respect and dignity towards them? There's a righteous anger. When we speak of uh, Nehemiah's anger here, we recognize that there is a difference between a godly anger, a righteous anger, and an ungodly anger, an, uh, an unrighteous anger. James 1 says, be slow to anger because, and now notice what James says here, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. God does not want us to be people that are constantly filled with just rage and anger. But there is such a thing as a righteous anger, an anger that is birthed uh, because we are created in the image of God. You know, anymore with cell phones and video on all the time, we, we get videos of stuff that we wouldn't have seen 20 years ago. And once in a while, you will see a video. It's, it catches the eye of the public, and someone is mistreated so poorly. And we see it, and, and uh, maybe we don't have the context, but, uh, but what we see happening, it just it enrages us because we see someone who's mistreated because... They're old or they're mistreated because they're young or they're mistreated because of the color of their skin or they're mistreated because they're homeless or whatever it is. And our natural reaction is to get so angry. Whether someone is a Christian or not, they, uh, it just gets us enraged. And the reason I think we get so enraged uh, uh, like that when we see that kind of thing happening is because we are created in the image of God. God has planted within us a desire to to see justice, to see people treated with dignity and, uh, and, with, and with respect. And so Nehemiah sees what's going on here, and he, he gets angry. And I think that we can say that this is a righteous anger because I think it would line up with the anger that God has at this kind of situation. And as the emotions are stirred up in his righteous anger, he's moved to pursue justice. In verse 7, Nehemiah calls the Jewish leaders in to confront them about what he sees happening. So I called together a large meeting to, to deal with them and said, As far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God to avoid the reproach of, the Gentile, uh, of our Gentile enemies? You, you get what ne uh, Nehemiah is saying here? In a sense, he's saying, Don't you see the irony of what's taking place? You, were, uh, you as a people were taken into slavery because the Babylonians came and uh, captured the Jewish people and enslaved them. And then the Medo-Persians came and uh, attacked the Babylonians, and now you're under their oppression. But once you get a little bit of freedom, you've been uh, slaves for 140 years, but once you get a little bit of freedom, you enslave one another. Literally or figuratively, you've, you have uh, put people in such positions that they are slaves to you because of the debt that they owe you. And Nehemiah says, even our uh, Gentile enemies are going to look upon you and think, what in the world is going on? 
You see, the Israelites were meant to be a light to the nations, and they are about to become a laughingstock to the nations. Because God is supposed to be a God of generosity. God is supposed to be a God of kindness. He's supposed to be the great provider. But when the, uh, the others would look upon the nation of Israel, they would think, how can God be a, a great provider if those that are in authority are, uh, are hoarding all the money? Surely they don't trust that God's going to provide for their needs. And they look at those that are in a position of uh, poverty and not being able to make ends meet and put uh, food on the table. And they think, surely God's not a great provider. You see, uh, Nehemiah says, it's an issue of your testimony. You're not going to be a light to the nations. And I wonder if we were to now apply this to our own lives, if people were to look upon you or upon your family or upon us as a church, what kind of testimony would they see would they see a person that trusts in a god who is a great provider would they if they look at your family would they uh recognize uh that god is a god of generosity and kindness by looking at the ways that you live among your family uh do you gather things together simply concerned with out of your own uh, selfishness. Do I need to pause here for a second? Come on, helicopter, make your way. Uh, do, uh, but when you, um, when families were to look at you, what kind of testimony that would they see? Would they recognize God to be a God of generosity? Would they recognize the God to be a God of kindness simply by looking at what his, the lives of his followers look like? If, if people were, if our neighbors were to look upon us as a church, would we be known to stand on the side of the poor? Would we be, have a testimony to the character of God? Now, I say all of those things with a conviction in my own heart because I'll admit it is hard to live this way. It is, we live in a world that is so self-centered in a world that is so focused on materialism and accumulation of things, it, it, almost, it almost seems radical if someone takes themselves out of that and lives a, a, life, a, a life of sacrifice for the good of others. But man, what a difference it would make. What a difference it would make if we were to determine in our hearts that we're not going to just simply use what God has given us for our own selfish uh, means or our own enjoyment, but we're going to think first for the good of others and, and think about how we might use the money that God has entrusted us to make a difference uh, for the kingdom. Because FYI, God has entrusted you with these things. Ultimately, they're not yours. He is the one that uh, owns the whole universe. He is the one that has been gracious to give you what you have. And it is, it is to be used as a tool, either for your own uh, uh, means or for the means of the kingdom. And what a uh, testimony it would be if we were to be moved to repentance, to put God first in how we use our possessions and the money that he has entrusted to us. Well, this is what we see in Nehemiah 5.10. The people are moved to repentance they say let us stop charging interest in other words we were charging a bunch of interest before now let us stop charging interest 
Let us give back, back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest uh, you are charging them. One percent of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. In other words, we're going to give it all back and a little bit more, one percent more. Now that's a definition of justice. To, uh, to give back even beyond what they beyond the wrong that they have taken. Repentance, it, let me talk for a moment about repentance because this is like foundational for what it means to live a life in relationship with God. Repentance is more than just saying, I'm sorry. Repentance is to say, I'm sorry, and then I seek to change my ways and to get and to right the wrongs that I have done. All week this week, there's been uh, road work done on the corner here of Cameron and Valinda. And uh, I've traveled through that intersection a couple times this week. And the problem is, no matter what direction you were coming, you could never take a left turn because they're working right in the middle of the intersection. So, uh, so, and I did this, cars would co be coming down, they'd go just past the intersection, and as soon as there's a break in the street, they'd U.E. it right in the middle of the street and start going the other way, so then they can take a right and get to where they want to go. In a picture, in a sense, that's a picture of repentance. We are headed in one direction away from God, and all of a sudden we get uh, woken up and say, I don't want to go that direction anymore. And we do a full U-turn and we start headed in the, heading in the other direction. And as we do, we put up roadblocks in our lives to say, I'm not going to go this direction anymore. I'm changing uh, the course of my life. And so some of those roadblocks look like accountability. Sometimes it looks like asking for forgiveness. Sometimes it uh, looks like going back and, and giving to someone that you have wronged before. But there is not only a saying, I'm sorry, but there is a change of direction in that we seek to live in a different way. This is what it means to become a Christian. At one point, we were headed away from God, and now we have done a U-turn to head towards God and to say, I'm going to live a different life. And guess what? B uh, repentance is very difficult. It oftentimes comes with pain, it comes with guilt, it comes with shame. But without repentance, there is no peace and joy and love. The attributes that we love about the Christian life. You see, God has called us to come and to change directions. And what we were going to do is we were going to take a left turn, and it was going to lead to a life that was not God's best for us. And all of a sudden, God has changed our life, and he has brought new things into us, into our new blessings into our lives. You see, I put all that for, uh, forth towards us because I just want to challenge us. What we're talking about this morning when we talk about our material things in terms of our money and how we use these things, it is not easy. But I think, myself included, uh, some of us, we need to take a U-turn. We need to begin to think about these things differently. And maybe there are other areas in your life that God is laying upon your heart even right now that you think that you know are not pleasing to God. You're headed in one direction and God calls you to turn around, to stop moving in the direction of lust and begin to move in the direction of purity, to stop moving in the direction of pride and begin to move in the direction of humility, to stop moving in the direction of self-centeredness and start moving in the direction of God-centeredness, to stop moving in the, uh, 
in the direction of, shoot, I started, I need one more. Stop moving in the direction of worry and move in the direction of peace. Stop moving in the direction of unforgiveness and move in the direction of forgiveness. You see, all of these things, it's hard, but it's beautiful. Because the picture, uh, because the life of repentance is a life lived with God. And the Israelites are moved to repentance. Notice what happens in their lives. Verse 12, we will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you said. And this is the last verse I want to read today, verse 13. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen! And they praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. And so what we've seen here this morning is a movement. A movement from injustice to confrontation to repentance to justice. And the final resting point is praise. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Isn't that a beautiful picture for our lives and for our church? That we would move from injustice to praise. That God would bring that blessing to our lives. And so let me now close with just a a couple points of application. First of all, I want to challenge you once more just to, uh, to consider how you are using your money to glorify God. You have an opportunity to use your money either for yourself or for God. And again, I'll give you a little no-brainer. You can't take it with you. You know, you can't take it with you. But what you can take with you, what will matter for all eternity, is the difference that you can make in someone's life. And what if you were to use what God has given you to help someone in their time of need? Or what if you were to uh, be generous to a person just simply out of being a blessing to them, to to say thank you to them, to show gratitude? What if you were to take someone out to breakfast and pay for their meal simply so so that you can share the good news of Jesus with them and to uh, be a witness? You see, we can use our money in so many ways. And my challenge for you is to use it as a steward for God's glory. How could you use what God has given you to make a difference in the lives of others? And then lastly, in terms of application, I'd like to emphasize that God's heart is a heart for the poor and the needy. He has compassion upon them. This sermon series is called Blueprints for a Rebuild. And we are seeking to emphasize things as a church that we want to be foundation, foundational ideas for our church and our ministry. And as a church, our heart is to love and care for those who are poor and needy. This is why we have a mercy and justice ministry. It's why we seek to uh, care for uh, helping provide education for families and children in the community at no cost in our tutoring ministry. And it's why we seek to have such a, uh, we want to have a welcoming attitude within our church so that anyone that comes in would feel welcome no matter where they're at, no matter what difficulty they're experiencing in life. See, as a church, we want to ground ourselves to say we want to stand alongside of those that are poor and needy. 
Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And so we want to line up with those who have the kingdom of God. We want to stand with the poor, the disenfranchised, the marginalized, and the hurting. So how could you use what God has given you to make a difference in the lives of others? And how could you align your heart with God's heart for the poor and the hurting? To be generous, to be kind, to show hospitality, to enact mercy and justice. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, we come before you and we just want to thank you for who you are uh, because we recognize that no matter what stage of life uh, we are in, you came and met us in our brokenness. And God, none of us deserve your love, but you have given us grace and mercy. And so God, I pray that we would uh, determine in our own hearts to seek to mirror what you have already done for us, that we would seek to go out of our way to come alongside of others with mercy, grace, generosity, and kindness. God, I pray for each person that is here today. I pray that you would show them what you would have for them in the area of their life where you, have, where you are calling them to repent. I pray that they would confess that to you and that you would strengthen them to make that U-turn and to start to head towards you and not away from you. And God, I pray that if there is anyone here this morning that has never uh, made that decision to turn to you and to receive you into their lives, God, I pray that you would uh, work in their hearts today and just give them the humility to lay it all at your feet and to ask you to come into their life and to be their Savior and Lord. We know that this is a difficult decision, but this is the best decision any one of us could ever make because it is only in life uh, lived with you and for you uh, that there is truly love, joy, peace. And God, we want everyone to be able to enter into that life. And so God, I lift up every person to you in Jesus' name and pray that you would come alongside of them. Amen.